Hello everyone, my name is Ildar. Welcome to another episode of Ask Me About North Korea, a podcast about the most reclusive country in the world. In this podcast, I'm answering the most widespread questions about North Korean politics, society, and culture, in a short and concise manner, based on factual evidence. If you like this podcast, I would be grateful if you could share it, leave a positive review, or subscribe. You'll find the transcript of this episode, as well as some commentary posts, book and film reviews on the podcast's website, www.askmeaboutdprk.wordpress.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Telegram. Finally, as the name of the podcast suggests, please feel free to ask me questions in your comments and reviews. I will do my best to answer them in the next episodes. And now, let's start. The question of how people live their daily lives in North Korea was often raised by various listeners, and I understand why it attracts so much curiosity. After all, one often wonders whether people lead their daily lives in the same manner, even in the most totalitarian regime on earth. Yet this question is very, very broad. Daily life in North Korea includes many aspects, ranging from individual interactions and work to education and cooking. Obviously, all of that cannot be captured in just one tiny podcast episode. Thus, I chose to split this question and mark this episode as What is daily life like in North Korea? Part 1. So today I will be talking about such aspects of daily life as receiving university education, earning income, and spending money, because all these things are a bit interconnected. That said, I will analyze each of these aspects separately. So off we go. While there are many things that make North and South Korea different, there is certainly one thing that unites them. Great passion for education. The South Korean obsession with education is very well known around the world and is even somewhat notorious. That stereotypical image of poor drained South Korean children that are always pressured by their parents to perform well in exams and enroll into most prestigious universities. Yeah, that image didn't just come out of nowhere. South Koreans are really competitive when it comes to education. And surprisingly, North Korea is no different these days. After going through a very politicized school program, young North Koreans have to compete for places in universities. Not everyone can get in, naturally. An important criterion for admission is senior middle school grades, although political recommendations play a role in the selection process as well. A young student wishing to gain acceptance to any institution of higher education has to be nominated by a special local committee consisting of the ruling party's bureaucrats. Thus, being able to recite the biographies of the great leaders and blurt out the Chuche ideological postulates are important skills. The so-called Songbong system of an ascribed social status used to play an important role too. For example, if you were a grandson of a veteran of the Korean War, it would give you much higher chances than, say, being a son of a former landowner. However, the Songbun system went down in flames under the rule of Kim Jong-il as North Korean society became more and more materialistic and some basic elements of social mobility emerged 
due to society's marketization. No longer if you were a grandchild of a landowner, it completely defined your destiny, especially if you're entrepreneurial enough. Thus, it became easier for the talented North Korean children, even with a relatively bad songbone, to enroll into prestigious universities. Of course, the omnipresent corruption about which I talked in episode 9 also affects the educational system as money today plays an increasingly important role in every aspect of the country's life. For a bribe of several thousand dollars, one could significantly increase their chances of getting into almost any university. At the same time, according to some North Korean defectors, if a student is a complete idiot, not even the largest bribe can help that person to get in. The most prestigious university in the country, naturally, is the Kim Il-sung University, named after the founder of North Korea. Kim Il-sung University is the country's only comprehensive institution of higher education that offers bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees. Other notable universities are Kim Chek University of Technology and University of Natural Sciences, which focuses on computer science, natural science related to mass nuclear research. Furthermore, there is also Pyongyang University of Foreign Studies that trains working-level diplomats and trade officials. What are the most popular areas of studies? Well, mostly technical subjects, hard sciences, and IT. All of them pay quite well. Apart from that, English, Chinese, and other foreign languages, which give university graduates an opportunity to either work with a foreign ministry or cash in and foreign tourists as guides and interpreters. Yet, whichever subject North Korean students choose, they will not be able to avoid the ideological component of their education, exactly like with schools. In every program, they will have special modules on the biography of Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-un, or what is often referred to as the Great Revolutionary History. Another small note here. If a North Korean man progresses directly through high school to college or university, he will be exempted from mandatory military service. This is no small bonus in North Korea, where military service lasts for 13 years. Also has to be noted that it is largely the sons of politically or economically privileged families that manage to get enrolled without major trouble. Whatever your university is, eventually you will end up working. And that is where we come to the next part of North Korea's daily life that we wanted to take a look at. North Korea has a large working population, almost two-thirds of the total one. So how do North Koreans earn money? Well, there is a strong gender divide. It depends on whether you're a man or a woman. Most men, after having finished their service in the army and or their studies, receive official jobs in the state-owned industries. No one is left unemployed as people are assigned these jobs by the government. Such jobs, however, do not pay well and people are not very willing to do them. However, if you are willing to pay a special fee that will cover your minimum labor costs, you might even drop the job to leave for the great private sector, which is way more attractive financially. When talking about a special fee, I do not mean a bribe, but rather a normal fee that one has to pay to the state and receive an official confirmation that one can leave the job. These fees can be quite high though, not everyone can afford them, yet there are still some entrepreneurs who manage to pull that off. 
In theory, the duty with the state assigned jobs should apply to women as well. That, however, is not always the case, which plays to their great advantage. In fact, one of the only rarely positive sides of sexism in North Korea is that if you are a married woman, then you can officially register yourself as a housewife, which relieves you from the government-mandated working duty. That consequently allows you to go and trade in the markets and make real money unlike your husband. Ironically, many North Korean women are now the major wage earner in their family, though still remaining housewives, mothers and cooks. Some of them even manage to do state-assigned jobs as well. Thus, the face of the North Korean economy today is largely female. Be it a state-assigned job or work in the semi-private sector, the working routine is pretty similar everywhere in the DPRK. How does a typical North Korean working day look like? It differs from our understanding of an 8-hour working day in two crucial aspects. There are mandatory pre-work and post-work activities. Let me elaborate on those. Before they proceed to work, many North Koreans have to start their day with a 30-minute political reading session, which includes the most recent daily editorials of the governmental newspapers. Furthermore, they also perform physical exercises to stay fit. Finally, these activities are followed by detailed instructions on daily tasks and official announcements. When their work ends, most North Koreans are required to stay for a couple of more hours for the daily community sessions and learning sessions. At the community sessions, people evaluate their daily progress and plan their activities for the next day. During these sessions, workers have to engage in self-criticism or, on demand, criticize their colleagues for poor behavior at work. To make sure that they do not blurt out something serious, people focus on minor things like being late or not working diligently enough. When it comes to criticizing colleagues, North Koreans try to find partners before the session takes place. These partners pledge not to say something too harsh about the requesting person, who in turn promises to return the favor at a later stage. In comparison to community sessions, learning sessions are political and normally include discussions on ideology or implementing party policy lines. It is not related to work in practical sense. Sometimes the sessions might encourage people to do things unrelated to work, like participating in the preparation for mass events or cleaning up the streets. All this stuff, which we could probably call community service, is organized by the collective organizations or unions. In fact, North Korea is a country of unions. Every single citizen is always a member of several organizations at least. There are all sorts of unions. The Agricultural Working People's Union, the Women's Union, the Children's League, the Union of Light and Chemical Industries, General Federation of Korean Literature and Arts Unions. The list can go on and on forever. The main point of all these organizations, as well as piling up all this extra work on people, is to make sure that they are always busy and are always under the supervision of various state-controlled entities, preferably as many as possible. At the same time, the so-called political education that starts from the first years of kindergarten never stops. It goes on to school, 
as you remember university and now here to work. The systemic approach to political propaganda naturally decreases the chances of any sort of collectively planned dissent against the government. It also provides an answer to one of your questions about what North Koreans do in their free time. Have to admit though that despite all the enormous amount of work and community service, they still have some hours for leisure, but as promised, I will talk about that in a different episode. Let us now focus on what North Koreans do with the money that they earn. How do they spend it? Well, first and foremost, North Koreans need to get their food and necessities somewhere. Since North Korea is not really a communist state anymore, it shouldn't come across as something surprising if I say that it is not the state that provides them with all this. Yes, North Koreans have to go to outdoor markets and buy things there. Yes, markets and what many foreigners still regard as the last Stalinist bastion of communism. While we do not have all comprehensive data for the prices of various foods and necessities in the provinces of the DPRK, the prices of rice are an important indicator of economic stability, and most other prices react to their jumps very sensitively. For example, in 2020, when the DPRK experienced a COVID-19 economic shock, the rice prices spiked from 4,500 Korean people won around 5.5 US dollars to 5,600 won, which is around $7. So that is by more than 20%. Eventually, they went back to their normal levels after a couple of months, but the spike resulted in a massive wave of panic buying at department stores in the capital. And oh yes, people also go to department stores in North Korea. Those located in Pyongyang and in special economic areas like Xinjiang offer a great variety of Chinese, European and even American products. As some refugees and tourists confirmed, one can even purchase the American imperialist Coca-Cola in Pyongyang. Even if you are North Korean yourself. All of that food stuff comes to the DPRK from China, whose custom services normally turn a blind eye on the illegal cross-border trade. Thus, the North Korean department stores today look like absolutely normal supermarkets in any Asian country. If you are curious about the visual details, I will attach a couple of videos to the transcript post that you can check out on the podcast website. Overall, we can safely say today that markets play an essential role in daily life of North Koreans because they provide a greater variety of goods than the state-owned public distribution system. Here, I would like to quote a rather interesting microsurvey by the Center of Strategic and International Studies, a renowned American think tank. The results of that survey that targeted North Korean defectors demonstrate that markets have dramatically improved the North Korean quality of life and are now, quote, an important stabilizing force for determining the cost of food and goods inside the country, unquote. The survey also found that 72% of respondents in provinces across North Korea received almost all of their household incomes from the markets. Unsurprisingly, its evidence suggests that the public generally reacts very negatively to any attempts by the government to suppress the markets. Overall, North Koreans, and especially their elites, are getting used to buying things from other private entities. Many industries are catering to the needs of the post-communist Chuche's bourgeoisie. 
Restaurants and bars in that respect are one of the best examples here. In fact, the restaurant scene in Pyongyang is thriving today. In terms of prices in the capital, a dinner in a regular upmarket restaurant would cost about seven to eight dollars. The most expensive places, however, can charge up to thirty or forty dollars. A rather Western European price level, if you ask me. Just a quick reminder here: the amount of thirty to forty dollars is an average provincial salary, so these places are not accessible to most North Koreans. If you are a tourist, however, you will most likely end up in one of those places anyway. Of course, you'll have to pay in foreign currencies such as Chinese yuan or U.S. dollars. That is one of the key sources of cash generation in the country. Some particularly affluent North Koreans also invest in real estate and construction. Actually, another indicator of how the private market has started to play an increasingly important role are the soaring real estate prices. For example, the prices in Pyongyang have skyrocketed over the past ten years, increasing five to tenfold, and they still keep growing. Professor Andrei Lankov provides a clear illustration with concrete numbers in his Carnegie article on North Korean economy. Quote, a decent two or three bedroom apartment may cost as much as seventy to eighty thousand U.S. dollars, while luxury three bedroom apartments are being sold for one hundred fifty to one hundred eighty thousand U.S. dollars. Apartments in smaller cities cost significantly less. An apartment in the border town of Musan, a prospering district center by North Korean standards, can cost anywhere from the low thousands to fifteen thousand U.S. dollars. But even these areas are beginning to experience price increases. End quote. Buying a car, by contrast, can be quite a hassle. While private automobile ownership is legal, it is subject to many restrictions. Nevertheless, North Koreans find ways to circumvent these rules anyway. Oftentimes, such private cars are purchased in China and then registered as the property of government agencies. Naturally. All these consumption habits also lead to the growth of income inequality, which has never been an issue in the earlier days of the country's existence. However, this can be a topic for another episode. So that is it for today. In the next parts of these series of episodes, we'll discuss other aspects of daily life, such as leisure, entertainment, behavior rules and traditions, among all other things. As for now, let me know. What is your take on daily life in North Korea? Do you think you could survive in such a society? Are there any aspects about North Korean daily life that you find puzzling, disturbing, or fascinating? Leave your opinion in the comments below or in the review section. If you like this episode, please leave a positive review on the podcast platform like Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Also, feel free to provide your feedback on this episode's quality and ask any questions about North Korea that you might have. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and stay tuned.